hppodcraft.com. The thrice infamous Nathair, alchemist, astrologer, and necromancer, with his ten devil-given pupils, had departed very suddenly and under circumstances of strict secrecy from the town of Fion. Other wizards less notorious than he had already gone to the stake during a year of unusual inquisitory zeal, and it was well known that Nathair had incurred the reprobation of the church. Few, therefore, considered the reason of his going a mystery, but the means of transit which he had employed, as well as the destination of the sorcerer and his pupils, were regarded as more than problematic. Ho, 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 ho. We got us some necromancers, yeah! Oh, man. I did not know how much I needed this specific kind of nonsense. <laughs> I, I started reading the story, and it was like the scene in the movie where heroin hits the bloodstream. <laughs> My pupils dilated, all the lights around me had trails, you know, I stole valuables from a loved one. It was amazing. What? <laughs> That's how good it made me feel. That intro paragraph is from the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Colossus of Yalorn. And that's a tale from Weird Tales back in June of 1934. 1934. Gosh, the whole time I was thinking, I want to see this as a film now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Ugh, I might start working on that one. Our reader this week is the incomparable Andrew Lehman. You know, that was just decided a, a bit ago. We asked him if he'd do it in, in the notes since we didn't know who the reader was. You wrote yeah. down, our reader is Tom Cruise. I did. And I have to admit, my first thought was, oh, we couldn't get Lehman? You know? <laughs> I didn't even wonder, how do you know Tom Cruise? How did you get him to do the show? Over at the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, you should know they are releasing a uh, new collection of music. It is Music of Dark Adventure Radio Theater Collection. It's uh, four mm -hmm. hours of music from episodes of the Dark Adventure Radio Theater written by Troy Sterling Neese. Good background music for gaming, writing, drawing, working out. Yeah. You know, working some spells, some magic. And I'm playing a little bit of it underneath the episode today. I think that folks should go, go grab that. It's great stuff. Beautiful music. Troy is super talented and a great dude. Right at the top, uh, during that intro, we dropped a sentence because when I read it, it was jarring. So... Mm -hmm. I figured it would be jarring to hear, yeah. but I actually want to talk about it because it, it uses an offensive word and not probably the offensive word you might be thinking of. The original sentence was, his departure had been prompted by a salutary fear of ecclesiastical thumbscrews and faggots. Do you know the meaning of the word? Yeah, it's, um, you know, a stick that you would burn, like kindling, which is why it was also slang for cigarettes yes. prior to it being used as a pejorative for uh, homosexuals. Also, it was specifically a bundle of sticks, like a, a, a group together, pull it together and tie them together because they would burn longer if they were in a group. Gotcha. Um, Boy, we <laughs> bundled the sticks again. Wasn't that, uh, we got in trouble when we did the story sticks for posting a bundle of sticks because somebody said it might be fascist imagery. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh yeah, well that's Everything's a whole other Everything's so thing. loaded, man. But you know, I think a context is important, which is why we didn't want to just have that sentence read in the beginning of the episode because if somebody was only half paying attention it would ring weirdly on their ear. You bet. Uh, because the context in which that word is used these days. And I know that for a fact because we did a Lovecraft story that had uh, Shubnagurath in it. Yes. Or that word was said. So there was a friend of mine that I worked with at my job at the time who I said, oh, you should check out the show. And that was mm -hmm. the most recent episode. And he did a little listening. And I said, oh, how did you like it? And he goes, I can't believe you're using that word. <laughs> you're like, I was like, what, what are you talking about? Word. He's like, the N word. 
You just said it in the beginning of the episode, or you re- the guy that was reading it just said it. I was like, were you listening to what he said? And it was like, <laughs> no, that was his takeaway. Yeah. So you got to be careful. <laughs> you do have to be careful. I knew this word as being derogatory in the mid to late 80s for a gay man. When I was college age, I learned that it also meant when I said it like a bundle of sticks used in a fire. And a gay friend of mine told me that's why they called gay people faggot is because gay people were burned at the stake, which was pretty gruesome. But when I found out, it's not actually true. This is an urban myth. The accounts of people being killed in Western Europe, specifically England, for being gay because it was a capital offense, they were all hanged. I'm not sure exactly where this urban myth came from, but it might be from this because in the 1500s, burning heretics was all the rage, the Catholic Church and the Inquisition, all that stuff. Heretics were called faggots because they were thrown under the fire. I read this account where they would actually make them gather their own sticks to be used in the fire that that was going to kill them. That's like that one. I watched a Jackie Chan movie one day where he ripped a guy's ponytail off and then beat him with it. (laughs) Very similar. Totally comparable. (laughs) So what happened was when people would recant their heresy, they were still forced to wear clothing that would be embroidered and labeled with the like a symbol of, of a faggot on there, usually on their sleeve. So, But it evolved by the late 1590s. It became a word to mean a woman who was unpleasant or troublesome and difficult to mm-hmm. bear. Obviously, it got misogynistic super fast, and it didn't s- seem to become part of American slang for a gay man until the early 20th century. All this said, it's an ugly word with horrible origins all the way through, but I think Clark Ashton Smith was using a very antiquated meaning of the word. Yeah, well, actually, the sentence is his departure had been prompted by a fear of thumbscrews and faggots. So I think he's afraid of the sticks themselves, you know, of being burned himself. Yes. Uh, and that's why. So it wasn't a question for these people why this sorcerer ran away, be, you know, being the point. When people are worried about political correctness and stuff like, look, it doesn't cost you anything to be more creative. Let's keep evolving language. If something's bugging folks, stop using it and find something else cooler. Yeah. Also, Think about other people's perspectives at the end of the day, just because your own life is boring. That's what I like to do. (laughs) Like, I kind of been seeing things the same way for a long time, and uh, I'm tired of it. It it can only help to see things from a, a, you know, stop worrying about sensitivities. Just try and get into some other people's heads because it's a better way to live your life. That's what I think. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate to have many people in my life that have said, hey, idiot, quit doing that thing. And then you think about it and go, oh, yeah, I am being an idiot, and I'm going to quit doing that thing. Yeah. Well, sometimes you have to push back, though. (laughs) <laughs> like Levi Nunez told us to stop doing this podcast. That's <laughs> stupid. Don't do it anymore. <laughs> What's with the drive-by on Levi? <laughs> I don't know. I just I thought we need an we need a good antagonist for this show. You That's know? true. We don't have any. We, it's do we? getting a little long in the tooth. I think that we'd do better if maybe we had somebody who was trying to destroy us. And okay, honestly, it's a compliment to him because I think he's the only adversary worthy of. Uh, oh my God! Yeah, he is our yeah. Moriarty. Yeah, you and me and him on Redenbacher Falls. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into this freaking rad story. Yeah, speaking of Levi, who who with his band Loot the Body does lots of songs about D&D. Boy, was this a D&D adventure. This Oh my God. Well, dude, I wish I had a D&D adventure this awesome. This story kicks ass. Yeah, it's great. It begins with a necromancer named Nathair and his 10 disciples. They have disappeared from the town Yvonne, which is in the fictional region of France called Evryon. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. It's fictional, so who, who knows? Yeah. Clark Ashton Smith created this region in France, and 16 of his stories take place there. 
It seems to be based on Avignon, which is an actual place in France. Clark Ashton Smith, his version, of course, is full of witches, wizards, and dark forces. We've done a bunch of other Clark Ashton Smith stories, and we so we've brought this up before, but I don't I don't think any have actually been in this setting. No. When I went and looked at the list of Averroin stories, uh, none of them rang a bell with me. So even yeah. though we've done Tale of September Zeros and stuff like that, we really haven't gone down this path. If the rest of the stories are as good as this, uh, you know, I'm sold. Oh, we got to read more. Maybe even this month. I don't know. Nathair and his followers, they just vanished one day. All their stuff's gone. Nobody saw them leave town. Not the town guards, not their neighbors, no one. Because this dude's such a weirdo, lots of rumors sprung up around his departure. I liked that he had 10 apprentices specifically. And it was important to me because I liked imagining all of the specific characters. So that's 10 evil students. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. He had lived close to the great cathedral, which made a lot of people angry. This diabolical dude being close to the church. How they got out of town unseen, some people said a legion of bat-winged assistants had borne them away bodily at moonless midnight. <laughs> awesome. Some think that they used just used some dark magic, and it seems that Nathair is in poor health for some reason, and he's going to die soon, so perhaps he left to be able to practice the black arts in a way to maybe figure out how to live or to cast some kind of spell of darkness in revenge against the whole region. Nathair had been in Vion's for six years. There was a lot of speculation about him. People said that he was fiend-begotten like the fabled Merlin, his father being no less a personage than Alastor, demon of revenge, and his mother a deformed and dwarfish sorceress. From the former, he had taken his spitefulness and malignity. From the latter, his squat, puny physique folks say that he learned his necromancy from his travels to the Orient and that he could make dead man perform tasks for him. Zombies. Mm -hmm. During his (laughs) third year there, he was stoned for his sorcerous ways, but not to death, just a light stoning. But of course, that made him loathe the city. This uh, character reminded me a bit of the character from Transformation by Mary Shelley. Do you remember way back when we read that one? Oh, right. Yeah. Dwarfish sorcerer type. Yeah. Yeah. I I do remember that one. Yeah. Some of this writing in here made me laugh. It says, if you stop a sentence in the right place, it said, there were black whispers anent that he had made use of long dead bodies of fleshless bones and the service he had wrung from buried men that the angel of doom alone could lawfully raise up. He had never been popular. They, it, was just, <laughs> it was just funny phrasing that made me laugh. And then, and then with the stoning, the way that was phrased too was funny. Once in the third year after his coming to Vion's, he had been stoned in public. <laughs> This guy. In public. Yeah, he's breaking statutes all over the place. I do wish I lived. They talk about all the gossip and the people batting around different theories about where he and his 10 pupils went. I really wish I lived in a place where gossip was like this. Oh, my God. You know? Awesome. Yeah. Sign, if there's an Averroin uh, People magazine or a Newsweek there, <laughs> uh, sign me up. Print edition. Obviously, is a corrupter of the youth. That's where he got his disciples. They were the young and intelligent that showed promise, but they were lured away by his witchcraft or mesmerism. I think it's just because yeah. he was a rad sorcerer. It makes me mad that he's a really charming guy with good plans, and then they say he's got hypnotic power. You're kind of just robbing his achievements from him. Exactly. But I do like hypnotic powers, too. One of these apprentices, however, had left the tutelage of Nathair, a guy called Gaspard du Nord, and he did not like what was going on, so he left to study magic on his own. When he got wind of Nathair's departure, he got worried, because obviously Nathair must be up to something. So Gaspard used a magic mirror to spy on him, but it didn't work for some reason. 
the reason, the only possible reason that it could be was that somebody was blocking it and that something would have to be a counterspell from Nathair, which means if he's doing a counterspell to stop my scrying mirror, he must be doing something really naughty that he doesn't want Gaspard to see. He's using anti-bugging technology. Yeah. But why would he do that unless he knows that somebody would try and bug him? Because of his knowledge and insight, Gaspard preferred to remain silent when he heard of Nathair's departure. Also, he did not think it well to revive the memory of his own past pupillage. I liked that short statement that uh-huh. he's, he's worried about his own history and reputation oh, yeah. as yeah. well. I mean, he, he's a noble guy. He doesn't want, you know, that's why he left. He goes, they're up mm-hmm. to no good. But you notice he's also not interfering up to this mm-hmm. point. He doesn't want bad press. <laughs> he doesn't want to. Re- he's like, I've built up a whole reputation. I've got my pharmacy. It's a nice business. I don't want to remind people. I used to hang out with a necrobancer. <laughs> yeah, I used to hang out with Nathair. <laughs> well, that gets us into chapter two, the gathering of the dead. So all these guys disappeared in the late spring of 1281. But in the early summer, there started to be reports of disappearances, but not of the living, of the dead. And this was the first time the specific year was mentioned. So yeah. I, it wasn't it's not present day. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, OK. Recon- recontextualize everything for me. <laughs> A gravedigger reported that six newly buried bodies were pulled from their graves, and not by a robber, but by themselves. As if the bodies dug themselves out with great strength, and then this happened. Nightly, for a period of two weeks, the cemeteries of Fion and also those of other towns, of villages and hamlets, gave up a ghastly quota of their tenants. From brazen-bolted tombs, from common charnels, from shallow, unconsecrated trenches, from the marble-lidded vaults of churches and cathedrals, the weird exodus went on without cessation. And these aren't shambling zombies. These are running zombies. They moved with great bounds of automatic frenzy into the night, never to be seen again by those who lamented them. Wow. That, that, that whole description of what was going on or what's rumored to be happening had a little suspense in it because of the type of things that we normally read mm-hmm. that... The bodies are disappearing, and when they look in the graves, they use a little forensic reasoning to, to say yeah. these bodies got up and left on their own. You know, me, of course, I was going, now did they burrow from underneath? Are we dealing with some kind of ghoul situation? You know, oh, right, yeah. Uh-huh. Or are these grave robbers who are making a Frankensteinian kind of thing? Mm-hmm. No, it's a third option. They got up on their own selves. All the bodies that raised up were young, healthy men, as in they, they died young and healthy. The old, sick, dead people stayed put. The church tried prayers and holy water to stop this from happening, but it had no effect. Yeah, there was a great sentence here. It said, the forces of secular law could do nothing to arraign or punish the intangible agency. You know, in addition to these prayers and holy water. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, is that a mention made because they've all just assumed, you know, we can't legislate away this problem of dead people getting up and running away. Or did they actually try, you know, maybe we should try and pass a law. Mm. You know, let's get something on the books that says dead people can't get out of their graves and run away. And there maybe that'll help. <laughs> and then, nope. <laughs> the dead people are lawbreakers on top of being undead. Oh, man. They're breaking the laws of nature, dude. I do think there's something special about sorcerer-possessed zombies. That's a little different than, you know, disease solar energy. These are deadbeat zombies. I think that'd be a good thing to call them. These are deadbeat zombies. They are deadbeat zombies. Yeah. We find out they're dark spirits that possess the bodies and animate them, which we're going to find out soon enough. But because this stuff is so scary, nobody dares follow the fleeing corpses. So nobody knows where they actually went off to. They went eastward, but people were like, well, what's east? There's the ruins of the castle Yelorn. Beyond the werewolf-haunted forest, in the outlying semi-mountainous hills of Averon. Werewolf-haunted forest. 
Yes. This is so much better than child molesting ghosts. This is. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds what? like it's a very targeted uh, dig that you just made, but you yeah. can really say that about most anything. <laughs> that's a that's kind of a catch-all description. True. Try applying that to any scenario. Ah, oh, this biscuit's a bit soft, isn't it? Yes, but it's much better than a child molesting ghost. <laughs> True. That's going to be my new, you know, things could be worse, you know. <laughs> so the castle is a craggy ruin built by a line of evil and marauding barons long dead. People think the place is cursed and that every and so everybody stays away from it. Now, on the opposite side of the valley is a Cistercian monastery. The monks there very private, and they have little to do with the outside world. But back in late spring, they noticed lights flaring from the ruins of the castle at night. That's when the Thayer beat feet out of there. But when summer came, they saw lots more crazy stuff. From the castle came flames of uncanny blue and crimson that shuddered behind the broken, weed-grown embrasures or rose starwards above the jagged crenellations. Hideous noises had issued from the ruin by night together with the flames, and the monks had heard a clangor as of hellish anvils and hammers, a ringing of gigantic armor and maces, and had deemed that Iglorn was become a mustering ground of devils. Mephitic odors as of brimstone and burning flesh had floated across the valley, and even by day, when the noises were silent and the lights no longer flared, a thin haze of hell-blue vapor hung upon the battlements. I can almost hear that Lord of the Rings... Yeah. Or theme and the clanging, you know, when I was reading that. So the monks believed that the place was full of devils, but decided it was not for them to mess with. They also didn't see anybody enter or leave the ruins until one early morning. They saw a procession of running zombies, more than a dozen of them going over the hill towards the ruins. They were putting up with it and they go, well, there's people up there and they're doing all kinds of some stuff. We haven't seen anybody go in or out. So they're pretty sure it's demons it's yeah. literally pe- you know demons from hell that are up there yeah what an interesting problem and now a bunch <laughs> of running zombies have come this is just a buffet of monsters i'm so happy oh god and it gets better all the bunks when they see these zombies they're pretty freaked out they want something to do but the abbot said the guy in charge of the monastery goes stay away what we need to do is pray more and god will sort it out as they prayed didn't really seem to sort anything out in fact the sounds got louder and the fires got brighter yeah and there's this monk here uh a teofield because i remember we did a story by teofield gautier so that's why i even know how to pronounce that oh there's this one monk teofield who had a um a bit of a drinking problem already right who got Mm -hmm. drunk yeah super drunk fell to his death and broke his neck and it says, no doubt he had tried to drown his his pious horror at these untoward happenings. We're saying he's drunk. That's not really in the story. In fact, the story's trying to make excuses for his behavior. I thought that was funny. <laughs> Surely it was because, you know, there's <laughs> demons in a castle over there. I mean, who wouldn't get drunk? Come on. A stout fellow uh, who made over-frequent visits to the wine casks. <laughs> it's such a sideways... Yeah, he keeps going down there to the wine casks. I guess he lost something. (laughs) His (laughs) self-respect. As they're doing the funeral mass for him, his body jumps up and runs out of the chapel with his head lolling to the side because he broke his neck. 
and then it runs off to the ruins. That's like a Peter Jackson. And you know that would yes. be so funny. Him running around with his head half severed. Ugh. So good. That gets us into chapter three, the testimony of the monks. At this point, two of the brothers, they can't take it anymore. They go to the abbot and they say, we've got to find out what's going on. Try to get our zombie brother back. <laughs> as well as any of the other people, we got to get them to consecrated ground. And the abbot decides, okay, I'm going to let you go. And he arms them with some holy water and some crosses. They're going to fight evil with faith. So the two monks, Bernard and Stefan, boldly climb the hill to the stronghold of evil, stopping only to pray. When they arrive during the day, they see no evidence of anything weird going on. But as they go into the castle, they can see that it has this bluish mist swirling around. And then they hear the sounds and there's bale fires. This is completely the Abbot and Costello of the story, too. It is. Because they've introduced the hero already. It's Dunor. You kind of know because he's the ex-pupil. It's yep. always the ex-pupil who's got to confront the father figure master. First, let's send a couple of idiots in here <laughs> so we can get a preview of the horror. So it's, you know, it's Abbot and Costello at the, at the Hor Museum of Horrors. It's, it's, and of course, it's two of them. And I yeah. guarantee they're on a spectrum of belief where one is more pious than the other. You know? Sure. Yeah, It's so funny. They felt sure that the place was an outpost of Erebus, an antechamber of the pit. But they decide, you know what? We're going in. We've got Jesus on our side. So they brandish yeah. their crosses and they start their chanting and they go in. The place has been gutted and turned into one huge chamber, like vast. And there are people and shadows moving about. And there's fires and furnaces. They're doing some kind of alchemy over cauldrons. And there's these giant bats full of bubbling stuff. Oh, it's yep. so rad. It is. I agree with that assessment. Near the vats, however, there's this little fancy area. There's all these nice couches and some linens and tapestries. And then there they see a pale, wizened dwarf who is seemingly supervising all these activities. In the middle of the floor, there's a huge pile of bodies and bones. One of the bodies is that of Teofiel. Now, one of the men working there is picking up bones and putting them into one of the cauldrons, and another is flinging lumps of flesh into another cauldron. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see what the sweet alchemy might be leading to. The monks are like, okay, we're going to do this. They redouble their chanting, and they rush inside, and they saw the body of a notorious outlaw named Jacques Le Loupgarou, <laughs> eh? Eh? who had been slain a few days previous in combat with officers of the state. So you finished the story. I'm only halfway yeah. through. Is is this guy going to werewolf out at all or anything like that? No. No. That's this just is, his name. Yeah, that's just his name. One can assume this might be tied up with another story in this cycle. So there might could be, be. This might pay off with a werewolf character. We know that there's werewolf haunted forests. So obviously mm -hmm. werewolves are a thing. There was some reference to lycanthropy earlier. But it, again, it was that W.E. Rewolf thing. The fact that somebody's <laughs> name is Luke Guru. You know, which means like man wolf. It's so ridiculous. Might as well be like, hey, my name's Marv Wolfman. <laughs> Please. This dwarf sorcerer and his minions finally notice that the monks are there. And the dwarf makes this shrill cry in some strange language. Then some of the workers throw hot liquids in the monks' faces and it burns and bites them. And then they both pass out. When they wake up, they're tied. And the dwarf comes over to them and he says, Return to your kennel, ye whelps of Laldaboa, and take with you this message. They that came here as many shall go forth as one. Hmm. Interesting. Is he like a matchmaker? He's going to, he's going to, anybody that goes there will fall in love. Is that what yeah. he means? He's make, he makes love connections. That's what's in those vats. That's what's in those vats. Then a shadow thing goes to the body of Le Loup Guru and it goes up his nose. Mm. And then the body 
comes to life and stands up and he's all messed up and gross. They really, all the descriptions of these things are very graphic. Like his face is all bloodied and he got like cut in the face. So it's like, it's, you can see part of his skull and stuff. Another shadow demon thing goes into the body of Teofil. Then those two, the two new zombie dudes, pick up the monk's crosses and then they start hitting the monks with their own yeah. crosses and they beat them, like kind of hurting them out of the castle. Like, they follow them out of the castle, beating them as as they're going. Jackie Chan must have read this story before he beat that guy with his own ponytail. He got his inspiration from this. <laughs> but sure what a great it. turnout that they got beat with the crosses on their way out. I mean, essentially, we're, we're approaching the midpoint of the story. Yeah. And the midpoint is the faith won't work. That's very clear. So after that, the abbot decides that it's time to quadruple the prayers. Oh, these guys make it back to the monastery and are able to tell their story. They were tied up in entrails and stuff, by the way, when they were yeah. had to stand. That Yeah, it was so yeah. gross. So after that, the abbot decides it's time to quadruple the prayers, because that's going to take care of those devils. In time, rumors of what happened to Bernard and Stefan got out, and everybody in the countryside started to suspect that Nathair and his disciples were the ones that were out there, and they were causing these problems. They were up to something, yes. something big. After a defeat so signal and crushing, no more of the monks were emboldened to go up against Iglorn. The whole monastery thereafter devoted itself to triple austerities, to quadrupled prayers, and awaiting the unknown will of God and the equally obscure machinations of the devil maintained a pious faith that was somewhat tempered with trepidation. And that gets us to chapter four called The Going Forth of Gaspard du Nord. So now the hero is going, now that we've set up the stakes and yeah. we've teased out a little bit what the plan is, I think it's fairly obvious. I mean, to me though, because I'm steeped <laughs> in monster stuff and D&D stuff, I don't know if this is obvious to everybody, but clearly he's having a big flash vat and some yeah. giant alchemical transformative power solution. Yeah. And it's going to make a big guy of some kind. Yeah. Well, you've read it. Don't tell me. That's what I'm intuiting, especially because it's called The Colossus of Elorne. I don't feel like I'm yeah. spoiling anything given that that's the title of the story. You're basically right. It's still surprising in the way that oh, it's good. delivered. I, I got to say, man, that this story is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> I don't know if it's just because it's the end of... We're recording this because we're taking time off for Christmas. We're recording this early. It's not 2021 yet. For you, it is. And Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year, of course, everybody. But for Chad and I, we're still in the tail end of 2020, and we just finished our coverage of Turn of the Screw, which was really taxing emotionally, spiritually, <laughs> intellectually. It was rough. Yeah. I got taxed at a higher rate for <laughs> December in my, in my uh, income. Uh, but it's like to have this fun monster, crazy story set in medieval France. Oh, my God. I'm just. Yeah, it's cool. It's great. I'm really enjoying it, man. I look forward to the second part. I was thinking that Wizard of Oz thing, that movie wouldn't have been out yet. So this was in 1934, this story mm -hmm. came out. Yeah. The book came out around 1900, so it definitely was a popular book. Mm -hmm. There was a, another film adaptation of it, actually, that was earlier. And it's an interesting one to watch because they introduced the twist in the beginning. You know, it's the people making the wizard. You know, the Wizard of Oz is revealed as this little guy who's creating this behemoth legend. Uh -huh. in the earlier silent uh, Wizard of Oz. Oh. Well, it just surprised me when I watched that because in the 1939 film, that's a big reveal. Oh, yeah, yeah. That Wizard of Oz silent film is available online, actually. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, right, yeah. But it's a neat connection between that and this, I think. Uh, but that's all we have for this week. We'll be back with Clark Ashton Smith, The Colossus of Yalorn Part 2, next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. 
And I am Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to some strange studies of strange stories here on HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com